The views expressed in this program are those of the host and not necessarily those of WVUD or the University of Delaware. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Thank you very much, Jason. And joining me in the studio today are two members of the University of Delaware Library's Special Collections Department. On my left and your right, as you're looking at the radio dial, we've got Rebecca Johnson-Melvin. And on my right and your left, as you look at the radio dial, we've got Maureen Check. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Glad to be here. We've asked you guys to come down because one of the hidden gems in Newark are the Special Collection Exhibitions that go on in the library, and right now we've got four of them, don't we? We have the main exhibition gallery on the second floor of Morris Library featuring In Focus, photography from daguerreotype to digital. And in the Lincoln case on the second floor, we have an exhibition about the Emancipation Proclamation. And on the first floor, we have in the information area um, an exhibit about the world of graphic novels, which will be on view until April 30th and a small exhibition about Rita Dove. Who's Rita Dove? American poet. African-American poet. Yeah. And this is National Poetry Month, Mm -hmm. so uh, she'll be appearing on campus, and this is a small recognition of her work. These exhibitions are just one of those little things that a lot of people don't know about me, but some of them are absolutely spectacular, and we'll talk about the photography exhibit in just a little bit. But one of the ones that caught my attention was the one about the graphic novel. Maureen, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, and then we've got a clip or two to play. Um, Well, the world of the graphic novel is on view, as I said, until April 30th on the first floor of of the library in the information area, and it was curated by Devin Church, and it has a lot of different representation about graphic novels um, from the traditional comic books um, of the 1960s uh, that people might be familiar with to international graphic novels representing things like Japanese manga um, and things uh, from around the world, including France and um, other countries. So you get a, a good sense of um, the graphic novel through time and through different cultures. One of the things I think that's very cool about this exhibit is that he's not a member of your library staff. I mean, you open up the opportunity to put mm-hmm. up exhibits to people like Devin from your IT staff. Right. I mean, um, you know, ex- that exhibition space is available for people to represent different parts of the library's collections based on their interests. So it's really, it's really interesting what people can come up with. Well, I had the chance to talk with Devin at the exhibit a few weeks ago. Let's hear him talk about a little bit about graphic novels and some of the differences between a graphic novel and a written novel. So one of the differences that you have between the the traditional novel and the graphic novel is uh, the ability for the author and artist to get across their, their vision in and of itself. So in a novel, you might have 
you know, three pages of, of words and to describe, you know, a particular scene or setting or this such. But the author only has those words to work with. And no matter how uh, specific they get in their description, it's always open to an interpretation in our minds. The key difference with the graphic novel is, is it's a lot like a movie. The artist has the ability, uh, through pen and ink, to lay out exactly what they want you to see. So if there is, you know, a space battle with 300 ships, they can lay that out exactly as they see it in their mind on the page. And they know that the, the reader then is seeing exactly what they're envisioning. In essence, uh, a graphic novel is a great way to tell a story without having some of the restrictions that you'd have in movie making where, you know, everything comes to a budget and you have special effects. But it, get, it gives you that, that free form that a novel would where you can literally put anything down on a page. I sort of get the sense with a graphic novel that, as you say, it's not a linear read as much as study a panel, go on to the next one. Yeah. It, it very much is. Uh, it's it's, it's a, a more intimate experience in some cases, I think, than a novel because you're, you're being engaged by both the artist and the writer. And you really, uh, I think, to get the, the full pleasure and enjoyment out of it, you, you have to take the time to, to really appreciate the artist's work and really kind of follow the story along in your head. Yeah. Excuse me. I think what Devin's getting to there is, you know, people's attractions to images and the ability of an artist and an author to collaborate to make their vision concrete for the reader and that that's how they connect with the reader um, in that way. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, you really often have to intuit a lot um, from, you know, the panels and graphic novels. Um, You know, in any given panel, you might have to you know, work to understand, you know, someone's emotions or their connection or relationship to another character or anything about exposition or the continuity. And depending on the style, there may or may not be a lot of text to explain that. So you do have to, um, I think, you know, be able to understand quite a bit about um, what it is you're looking at. So that really points to, you know, themes of visual uh, literacy when you're reading these things. By the way, I'll have the entire interview that I did with Devin up at the show's website, www.udel.edu slash campusvoices, in addition to this interview that we're doing now and playing a couple of clips from him. The next thing that, that we selected was him talking about some of the cultural differences between graphic novels um, that were in the exhibition. This case over here that we're, we're obviously at the exhibit that I'm pointing at is one where you've got all sorts of international things in it. Are there any kind of cultural differences that that you see in the artwork or the relationship between the writing and the artwork, depending on the different culture? Most definitely there are subtle to uh, very extreme differences, either in a graphic style or, or in the writing style. Uh, for anybody who's familiar with the, the Japanese uh, manga, uh, the, the facial features, specifically the eyes and the mouth, uh, these represent uh, cultural preferences in Japan, the, the big eyes being more friendly, more approachable, uh, and the, the smaller mouth. Each, each culture has 
various aspects that they want to either enhance or, or minimize in the work that they do. And then I think it certainly comes through uh, in, in both the art and, and the narrative of the graphic novel. French, unfortunately, is not a language that I speak fluently, uh, and I, I think we lose some of it in the translation. But if you take a look at, you know, Asterisk and Obelisk or Tintin, um, you have these these works that uh, have a, a different sense of adventure than what we would think of. And uh, I, I think that's noticeable as well. Um, we might be more, you know, I don't know, drawn to doing a, a G.I. Joe figure. They might like, you know, Herg's, you know, Tintin more as, as an iconic, this is what we think of as a hero. So there are definitely differences. Um, yeah, I mean, I think cultural difference in, differences in style are, are very obvious when you, you know, put them all together. Um, Devin mentioned um, differences in representation um, in in manga, and that's definitely true in terms of, you know, the way that the characters look, but also in the in the expression of emotion. You know, it's become, you know, pretty mainstream and popular to understand that, you know, a large sweat drop on someone you know, signifies awkwardness or, you know, being uncomfortable in a situation. Um, but, you know, you can also see a lot, he mentioned um, difficulties of translation so that, you know, often if they're making a pun or something in, you know, the native language, it doesn't necessarily translate. Um, so that can be, you know, kind of difficult to when you're trying to read it in English to see what it is that they're getting at. Now, this exhibit that exhibition that Devin has curated down there on the first floor is almost like the appetizers you enter the building because you go upstairs the second floor into the main gallery and rebecca we've got an amazing exhibit up there about the history of photography second floor gallery in morris library is uh, a place where we feature holdings of special collections and maureen and i curated this current exhibit and really enjoyed doing it because it is one that features both our print materials as well as manuscript materials, uh, ephemera, um, advertising ephemera, graphic material, the wide range of sources that are available in special collections. And that is really the goal of all of our exhibition programs, is to provide outreach and to let people know about the sources that are available for them to use. And we're really pleased with the response we've gotten so far to In Focus from several faculty who've arranged to bring classes in. We have um, some public tours that we're giving. Uh, we are available if anyone wants to schedule a visit for a special introduction, but of course we're also available for just walk in and visit the exhibit on your own. That gallery hours on the second floor are Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and on Tuesdays we're open till 8 p.m. Um, so we encourage everyone to stop in, and uh, we also like to remind people you can visit this exhibit online through the library website or um, you can also visit past exhibits. And I think they give you a real overview of our holdings. You can see how we've used exhibitions in the main gallery to feature everything from alchemy and our history of chemistry collections to major American literary projects such as Hemingway or Tennessee Williams. Um, all of these exhibit programs feature real collecting strengths 
and it's up to the curators to come up with a an, an interpretation and a way to hopefully intrigue our audience um, in the source material. Now up in the main gallery, I think you change the exhibit once a year, twice a year. You have two a year. Twice right? a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking at the list. We've got the exhibit now on on photography, and before that was, as Rebecca said, the um, exhibit on alchemy, mm-hmm. um, and before that was Dickens, and before that was playwrights and performances in the American theater, and before that, American writers in Britain, and one back in 2010 was about the games people play. So it's just a whole broad thing. And the thing that's so cool about it is these are all things in the library's collection. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. It- and uh, we do get great response. Um, we find that when we have these available, the descriptions online, they also serve as a reference tool. We find people contacting us because they've searched the Internet and discovered the library has some unique holding, follow-up, either you're a visit or perhaps an online question. Um, but it's really a wonderful space, and this is very common to do outreach in this way to showcase your material, and it fits in, I think, very nicely with the University of Delaware programs where there is a lot of interest in museum studies and conservation, and those kind of skills are all part of how we present material in the Special Collections um, exhibits. All right, let's turn our attention to the photography exhibit. I had a blast when you two gave me a guided tour. We were up there for over an hour. I think we start off in the portrait room. Um, I think that speaks to the power of the media and just... uh, Photography is an incredible art form. Um, It's a documentary tool. It's an educational tool. It's definitely a part of popular culture. And it's a a technological marvel to discover the processes. Yeah, I mean... I learned so much just by, you know, researching this exhibit and putting it together and the different, I guess, evolution, evolutionary stages photography has gone through. Um, And you can see that in the exhibit in the different you know, ways we tried to put it together and how it intersected at many of these places all at the same time as an art form, how it, you know, strove to become an art form, um, how it's now, you know, in its analog form, how it's um, basically an antique, um, you know, in terms of the prints and the the negative, you know, the film, actual film. Um, or the plates. The, the plates and the cameras. And, you know, this is this is all ancient technology um, in a way. But, you know, in photography um, as a chemical process and how that advanced and the experimentation and kind of social, social you know, culture that it that emerged around it um, out of it out of this experimentation and how people, you know, basically work together to move it forward. It's, in, it's interesting to see um, our students' response to what's being shown because to them a lot of these are real artifacts um, that in the digital world they're used to the spontaneous instant capture of an image. And when they look at the um, process and uh, we have a lot of technical manuals that tell you what was involved in producing photo- photographs and Um, the experience of going to the studio, even the fact that the earliest photography required you to be very still for a long exposure time. That is so different from the world now and being able to capture an image. I thought one of the cutest parts of the exhibit were that section of manuals when companies like Kodak first started producing consumer cameras. I mean, Kodak changed everything. They, you know, instituted 
the amateur movement as we know it by making cameras accessible for people and easy to use so that you didn't have to be a chemist yourself to be able to produce plates and produce photographs and prints. Um, you know, and, and revolutionizing the size of the camera so that you didn't have to cart around this big honking thing with you and all of your chemicals to produce your plates, you know, and your flashes and all of those things. So they made it easy. You know, that's why their slogans are still with us. Right. And that's one of the things we use advertising ephemera is to show how the camera was marketed. It's easy enough for a child. It's easy enough for a woman. Um, it's part of the family life. There's a great little brochure about hunt with your camera and not, you know, with your gun. And that was um, interesting to see that the hunting vocabulary was actually a part of marketing and our familiarity with the camera now you load the cartridge of film and you shoot an image so that was part of the Kodak you know outreach for popularizing photography what time frame are we talking about for the for Kodak popularizing the home camera I'd say late 1890s to early 1900s and then the whole 20th century, basically. And I'd like to mention again about this um, advertising ephemera. A lot of this is small um, little brochures or uh, the catalog that you could order the camera from. A lot of this type of material doesn't survive in the world. And it's why we have special collections and why we identify this as unique primary source material. And we'd like to acknowledge um, Dr. William Homer, the late professor emeritus of art history, who is really behind a lot of the original material we have to use in special collections for this exhibit. One of his areas of expertise was the photo secession movement, um, the salon movement in photography, the pictorialist photographers, and he collected a lot of this for his own research. He gathered a lot of information about how photography was exhibited and promoted as an art form, which it wasn't originally. It took a lot of um, international presentation and showcasing of photography for people to realize it was an art form. And one of the most important woman photographers in America was Gertrude Casebeer. There's a Delaware connection there in that her great-grandson lives in Wilmington, and he and family members bequeathed several beautiful photographs, which are currently on display in Old College. And that's a parallel exhibit. We'd like to encourage people to go see that, as well as the library exhibit, learn more about this period of photography. On Campus Voices this morning, we're speaking with Rebecca Johnson Melvin and Maureen Check from the University Library, and they're talking about the Special Collections Exhibition Program. And right now we're in the middle of talking about the current featured exhibit, In Focus, Photography from Daguerreotype to Digital. Now, I was just fascinated by the the portraits, as I said, where you first took me. That's it's, and We've got pictures of people. They're relatively s static images, people sitting there. But still, there's all sorts of interesting features in those portraits. As we were selecting material, we really couldn't exclude portraits. And across our archival collections and manuscript collections, there are any number of beautiful portraits. And these are both formal as well as informal. So uh, we selected several collections. And uh, Maureen, you want to describe some of them? Sure. Some of the ones that we chose um, were from... British writer uh, uh, Beverly Nichols, and he, you know, as a, basically a marketing tool for himself, had a lot of portraits taken over his lifetime. Um, so you can see, 
you know, the different styles from when he was a young man until he was older. And represented in that collection are a lot of really famous um, 20th century portrait photographers like Cecil Beaton and Norman Parkinson. I think there's Carl Van Vechten in there as well. So you can see, you know, those really different styles. Um, those are from the 20s and 30s mm-hmm. and 40s. And then we have another group of portraits that were taken by Carl Bissinger, who was a uh, post-war photographer for Flair and several small magazines. And he caught um, a really an exciting period of creativity, a lot of performers on the beginning of their career, and um, very striking portraits of uh, these people in creative spaces. There's a beautiful picture of Patricia Neal and um, others. And then... There's some other portraits from the 50s in a very different style. Those are by Raleigh McKenna. Um, She became known as uh, Welsh poets, uh, Dylan Thomas's photographer, um, while he was doing his lecture tours uh, in the United States in the 50s, right before he died. Um, So there's some really nice portraits of him, you know, captured while he was speaking and, you know, with his wife, Caitlin, and they were very famous for their very tumultuous relationship. So, you know, capturing the author, um, you know, in his life and in his work is, uh, you know, what she was able to do. So we switch between having portraits um, by one photographer to other portraits of a subject. And there's another group of portraits of Paul Bowles and Jane Bowles. Uh, They're important literary figures in our collections. And these are really striking portraits of them. And then from a later 1980s, 90s period, um, portraits of more creative literary figures by Chris Felver, and those, again, show a different style. One of the parts of the exhibit, I know it's a minor part, but to me it was fascinating and, well, really fun, was that section on spirit photography, where Mary Todd Lincoln, among others, um, had a special place for this in their hearts. I kind of became obsessed with the spirit photography because it's so <laughs> weird, and you know, it, it kind of not surprising because, you know, it comes out of, you know, this major interest in spiritualism in the 19th century um, when, you know, you have a high mortality rate because of disease and because of wars. Um, so people were really anxious to be able to continue to connect with their loved ones after they died. Photography inserts it, you know, is inserted in a very interesting way in a particular case in the I guess that was the 1890s, William Mumler in New York, where he was a spirit photographer. And what he would do is that he would take portraits of people and supposedly spirits would appear in the in the photographs, you know, with with, you know, with the sitters. And he was um, charged with fraud and um, I believe also with larceny because he, he charged a lot for these. These were not cheap. He was eventually acquitted because they couldn't prove how he faked it. Um, there were a lot of ways that you can fake these things by manipulating the negatives or double exposing them, things like that. But they never they never proved it. Um, so it's just very interesting, you know, how photography is a scientific tool, which is what it was known then, really emphasized as then, um, you know, intersected with religion at the time. Um, and the spiritualists, you know, the defenders of Bumler, um, you know, weren't trying to disprove photography as a scientific tool, but try to incorporate it into the spiritualist movement, sort of, to be able to prove that there was life after death. Some of the pictures you have there looks like somebody has just done a double exposure, mm-hmm. like you say of them. I mean, it probably, you know, 
that's probably just what they did. I mean, they had, you know, a lot of different ways to fake these things at the time. But I think, you know, people not being familiar with the chemical processes behind it, um, you know, even in the 1890s, you know, still being very new and kind of mysterious to the average person as to how to develop a photograph probably contributed a lot to it. There are a lot of different sections of this of this exhibit, and uh, we only have a few minutes left, so I should probably let you guys sing the praises of the major sections there. I think we exhibit. should definitely mention the daguerreotypes that are from uh, the Bringhurst family papers, and that's part of the Rockwood archives that came to the University of Delaware. And if anyone knows uh, Wilmington and where Rockwood is, uh, they'll have a special interest in seeing these early daguerreotypes, um, and one of them is being used to publicize the exhibit. What we really like about the one that was chosen for the postcard to publicize is that we know the name of the photographer and the date and the place it was taken because the family recorded that information. It's a photograph by Isaac Briggs um, in 1848, and that is very early. The earliest daguerreotype was 1839, and It's so remarkable to have that information preserved with the image, and all of the other daguerreotypes that are shown in this exhibit are also identified um, by the family members, so it's really important to connect and realize how important it was to share an image with loved ones, and that is the early movement in photography. It moved on to other themes that we've developed um, in this exhibit, such as the art of photography. There's ethnographic photography, the documentary period of photography that was so important in conveying the social concerns of the 1930s. Uh, There's a special area on war photography, and we have some real masterpieces such as Alexander Gardner's sketchbook of the American Civil War, where you see not only the battle dead, but the progress of war, the um, movement of the troops, the technology and engineering that allowed uh, soldiers to cross rivers, and it's really remarkable documentation. At the same time, we see war photography showing the trauma and the changed landscape through the World War II, World War One, Vietnam. Um, I think another really interesting thing, you know, that we have are uh, science photography, very early form of photography. Um, so that spans a lot of different areas in that from micro to macro, uh, astronomy photography, documenting nature, and then moving into documenting um, landscape which was a you know always a popular topic juxtaposed against the built environment so um urban landscapes and things like that and also you know we have sections on color photography color being very important processes and developing that and the chemistry involved with that too as we were talking about earlier um the involvement of the camera and photography in everyday life and documenting travel as it became as the camera became smaller it was a lot easier to take it with you um, and document your everyday life and becoming part of the family. I'd just like to emphasize that everything that's in these exhibitions in the library is in the collection, and it's there available for researchers, students, faculty, staff, I imagine even members of the general public to look at there in, in the library. And let's have Devin talk a little bit about that. The, the library houses an extremely broad collection uh, with a great deal of depth on, you know, a plethora of subjects. And we, we take the time and opportunity to highlight things like the graphic novel collection to show 
you know, students and, and those who are considering research just what resources they have at their fingertips. But this is just such a very tiny tip of the iceberg. And hopefully this will inspire uh, various people to, to explore further. Absolutely. We welcome uh, our researchers and come in and enjoy the exhibits. Uh, sometimes there's public programs. Uh, there's actually an opening reception tonight, 5 to 7 p.m. If you're listening live, that's April 4th. At what time? 5 o'clock. And again, thank you both for coming in. This is the exhibition program in the library, I think, is one of the hidden treasures of Newark. And again, it's available to anybody who walks in the library from 9 to 5. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you. And thank you very much, Rebecca. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org.